In this episode, I want to talk about some questions and criticisms I've received on my article about prophecy. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. It's been a bit of a crazy week for me here at Onward in the Faith. I wrote an article about a week ago just kind of responding to some dreams that a pastor had had and shared with his congregation, and then that video kind of spread all across the world. And so I just made an article and then a podcast just kind of giving my own thoughts on what was said and kind of how, as Christians, we could interpret this if it's not truly prophecy. And I didn't expect it to take off, but it has gotten a lot of traction. Uh, Many people have read it, and so... Because of that, I've also received a lot of comments and criticisms and questions about this article. And so I thought what I would do is just kind of talk about this whole thing one last time, give some clarity and things like that, because while I've addressed almost everything here in my comment section or in the emails that I've received, I do realize that most people probably aren't going to read through uh, 60-plus comments to kind of see me clarify things and answer questions and have conversations with people. So I've grabbed some things that are kind of common threads that people have brought up or questions that people have had or things that I do wish I would have clarified or that I should clarify regarding this article that I wrote. So the first thing I want to talk about is just why I wrote it in the first place. A lot of people, they may have Google searched the topic and found some article by this website called Onward in the Faith. No one's heard of me. No one knows who Ray Burns is. So what's the deal? Where did this come from? So personally, I try to avoid relevant topics because my desire is for Onward in the Faith to be more of a timeless resource for people. In my mind, I picture in 10 years, my kids being able to go on to the website and find information about whatever topic they may have questions on. So I don't like just talking about things that are only relevant for a week or a month or a year. I want to talk about things that drive us into God's word and give us kind of truths that are relevant at almost any time period. And a big focus of that is that I will often only talk about things that are maybe relevant to my local church, because that's really where my focus is. I have an internet presence, but I want to be most useful to things that people in my own church are dealing with or thinking about or wondering about. And now, of course, prophecy is a big deal, and it's something that I did want to discuss at some point. But the thing is that, despite the length of that article, I really don't like the whole topic of prophecy. It's not a favorite thing of mine to study or talk about or dig into. It's important, but it's not where my passion lies. It's not what I go on the internet to learn more about. It's not what I read books about and things like that. It's something that, at most, I've gotten a strong working understanding of because I want to be able to talk to people about it. And it is important for us to understand the role of prophecy and how it affects us today. And so... 
if you've read the article, you know that it's something that I have at least studied out, but it's really not something I was really pumped and excited to discuss. And so I had, of course, seen this Three Dreams video bouncing around on social media, but I hadn't clicked it because people having prophetic dreams is nothing new, and I try to be very careful with my time, and so I tend not to watch things that I'm personally not going to be very mindful of. But a friend at church had texted me and sent me a link and said, hey, what do you think about this? And so clearly, as I said, it was something that a person in my own church was wondering about. And so I decided to click it and kind of listen to it as I was going through my day. And I figured I would just give her kind of a quick response on whatever my initial thoughts may have been. And so I listened and I realized that if I was going to respond to her, it was going to be pretty lengthy. And so I decided to kind of redeem my time, I guess, and respond to her in an article format. Kill two birds with one stone, if you will. And so that's really where all of that came from. And I saw it in general as a good opportunity to just put discernment into practice. Because I can talk about the importance of using discernment and how to think critically about things in the Bible and compare what the scripture says with maybe what our traditions tell us and things like that. But I saw this as a good opportunity to just make it more practical and say, here's how I go through the process of thinking about this. Here's how I look at prophecy. And as you saw in the article, I don't believe that prophets are active today. And so because of that, how would I explain where prophets seem to be getting these messages from God? Or why does it seem like it's true? And so that's really where this whole thing came from was just me wanting to talk about a topic that I felt would be relevant to people within my church circle and hopefully be uplifting and challenging for them. And for whatever reason, God chose to take this article and really blow it up and put it in front of a lot more eyes than I ever intended to. And so because of that, again, I've gotten quite a bit of comments and criticisms. And so now I will go through the more specific ones of those. So these are in no particular order. And if you don't want to sit and listen to this whole thing, I will put timestamps down at the show notes so you can see each question that I'm going to address as well as where that is in the podcast. So you can just kind of fast forward to maybe a particular question you wanted to see addressed. So the first one is, shouldn't we just pray for truth? And kind of alongside that that I want to discuss is, well, what about an experience I've had with prophecy or a feeling I have about this particular video? Now, as far as prayer goes, prayer is absolutely critical when it comes to hearing something and trying to work through and understand it. But where I think we may get it mixed up sometimes is that prayer is absolutely our reliance on God for wisdom and guidance in our lives. But prayer won't often just end with a concrete answer. What prayer will most often do is drive us into God's word and find wisdom there to understand how we should think about something. So prayer and reading the Bible are often described as a conversation. Prayer is our discussions and our talking to God, and then his word is his talking back to us. And it's a cycle that should really be never-ending. We should have an ongoing conversation with God in terms of we speak to him, and then he speaks to us. 
And so in a broad sense, that's how we should be thinking about prayer with something like this, is that perhaps we can pray and God, through the Holy Spirit, will give us a concrete yes or no on something. But that shouldn't stop us from going to the Bible and saying, okay, what is truly taught here? Because we as people are very good at deceiving ourselves and wanting to hear confirmation from God on something that we want to be true. And so when it comes to our understandings, specifically on things like prophecy, I had some comments where people said, well, you know, I've experienced prophecy myself. I've experienced the miraculous. So how can you say that this isn't true? And same thing with how someone is feeling about it. You know, they heard the video and they felt that it was right or they felt that it was wrong. And how can we possibly discount that? And I don't want to nullify what someone has experienced or what they feel, but those aren't good markers for truth. It's God's word alone that tells us what is true and what is not. And the basis that we can understand this on is in Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so a kind of funny experience I've seen in the comments and in the emails that I've received is that some people will say, you know, I watched the video and I prayed and my spirit just felt like it was wrong, that there was something off about it and it didn't sit right to me and I knew that it wasn't from God. And then other people will also come along and say, I watched the video and I prayed and my spirit just felt that it was right, that everything that was being said was true and it was truly from God. Now, how can we possibly rationalize what's going on here? Because two people are literally saying that the truth is opposite of one another. Either it's true or it's not. And people are saying that they prayed and they felt one way or the other. And again, that's where I get my insistence that our feelings have value and our past experiences have value. But we can't let them interpret what God's word says. We can't say, here's what I believe, here's what I feel, and now I'm going to read the Bible or think about God in a way that confirms what it is that I want to believe. Instead, we need to put ourselves aside and say, okay, God, what are you teaching me in your word? I'm praying that you will give me wisdom and guidance and understanding to understand this in a way that brings glory to you. Even if I don't like the answer, even if I don't maybe understand the answer, I want you to teach me truth based on your word, not my feelings. And so when we do that, then what we say is, God, your word comes first, and my feelings and my experiences just need to get in check. Maybe they won't agree, but when it comes down to how I feel versus what you say, what you say matters most. And I think as followers of Jesus Christ, that should be our stance on everything related to truth. What God's word says needs to be our primary authority in every matter of our lives. Our feelings can help. Our experiences can give us information. Our church traditions and things like that can help guide us. But ultimately, everything needs to fall under the authority of God's word. And so when we're doing that, again, prayer is essential. It is critical. And James 1.5 even talks about this. It says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So yes, with this topic or with anything, pray, seek God, fall to your knees, listen to the Holy Spirit, but don't just stop there. Get into God's word, because if God is telling you that something is true, his word has to agree with it. Now, another criticism that I've received is the idea that I am being judgmental 
with my article. And this was kind of a funny one because I had many comments who would say, oh, you know, you were very fair and you were balanced and you try to be very generous with him. And then other would, others would come along and say, you know, you were really harsh and mean and judgmental. And regardless of how the article impacted you, the reality is that God's word does regularly call us to use judgment in our lives. Now, for sake of length, I don't want to dig into everything, but if we were just to read 1 Corinthians 5, we would see that judgment is a very critical part of the Christian life. And now in this situation, Paul is addressing in this part of his letter some extreme sexual perversion going on in the church of Corinth at that time. And in verse 3, he says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. And then if you keep reading, and I would of course encourage you just to start 1 Corinthians chapter 5, read the whole thing. And as you keep reading here, he goes on and talks about the importance of removing sin from the church. And then in verses 12 and 13, he goes on and says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from yourselves. And so when we read things like this, we need to ask ourselves, how do we remove wickedness from the church? How do we look at someone and see their behaviors and see, well, this is good and in accordance with what God says, or this is wrong and needs to be rejected and even dealt with? We can't possibly do that outside of judging people against God's word. And now that sounds harsh, and our culture doesn't like that. And a common counter that people bring up to that is, well, Christ says don't judge others in Matthew 7. And so if we read Matthew 7, verse 1, it says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And that seems like it wraps it up perfectly. So how are we having Paul say to judge and Christ say not to judge? Well, if we keep reading in Matthew 7, Christ says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Christ is talking about here isn't don't judge. What he's saying is don't judge unfairly. And so he's talking about double standards in our judgment and hypocrisy in our judgment. Because what we need to realize is that judging someone isn't criticizing them. Judging someone is holding them up to a standard and seeing if that person meets the standard or fails against it at some way. And so if you think about it, even in our own modern context, think of actual judges. What does a judge do? He looks at someone, he sees the evidence of their actions, and what does he do? He compares what they've done to what is in the law. And he holds that person and judges them and gives them judgment based on how they have kept or broken that law that they are bound to. And the flip side of that is that a bad judge is going to be one who holds others to a standard that he doesn't want applied to him. And so as believers, we need to take that very seriously. We should judge people 
by what God's word says. That is our standard. That is how we live our lives. That's how we are called to live our lives. And therefore, that is how we need to hold others accountable for their life, for their actions, and for their words. But we need to expect that, of course, to be applied to us. Because making God's word our standard is the only way we're going to know truth and also call other people back to truth. Now, as Christians, of course, we don't want to be hyper-judgmental. That's not at all what I'm saying. We need to have grace and mercy because, again, we realize that we are not perfect. We do fail. And so we need to extend love and grace and mercy to others. But at the same time, we can't just disregard all of God's word and replace it with grace and mercy because that's not what God does. God does have grace and mercy on people. Those whom he saves, he has an incredible amount of mercy on because he took our sin and placed it on his perfect son. In exchange, he took his son's righteousness and placed it on us. That is grace. That is mercy. But those who do not receive that grace and do not receive that mercy will still be judged. They will be held to a standard that God has set. And so the main point here is that judgment itself is not wrong as long as it's done correctly and as long as it's done fairly. And so in my own article, I hope that all I really did was say, here's what God's word says, because that is hopefully what all my articles do is either directly point people to scripture or use a biblical worldview that has been clearly inspired and affected by the Bible to say, here's truth. Here's what we need to understand about a topic. And I would hope that people would hold me to that same standard. I hope that they would say, here's what God's word says. Here is what the truth is. It's not about how clever or smart someone may be or how well-intentioned they are. I want people to hold me to God's word and make his word the standard. And I hope that just as I try to show grace and mercy to others, In their understandings, I also hope that people will extend that same amount to me, where they will hold me to God's word while still realizing that I am a broken sinner. I am not perfect. I don't know everything. I at times feel like I don't know anything. But ultimately, I want to find truth in God's word, and I hope other people just want to find that right alongside me. I want to address two questions at once here, and they seem unrelated. And those are, Am I confusing the difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy? And is it wrong if a prophecy doesn't contradict the Bible? Now, again, those seem unrelated, but how I understand prophecy is going to impact how I understand whether a prophecy is wrong or not if it's in agreement with God's word. And I really want to try to address this as quickly as I can, because this could be, of course, its own episode. But an idea that we tend to have is that we see these New Testament commands about how we need to test the things that people are saying and and hold them up against God's word and make sure they align with truth. And we think that that's a New Testament thing because in the Old Testament, we had these very clear prophets and people who were overwhelmingly a representative of God and who clearly spoke in his name. But if we actually dig into the Old Testament, we're going to see that the warnings in the New Testament are the exact same ones that people held in the Old Testament. And so in my article, I already talked about the call in Deuteronomy to test prophets, to not just believe what they say, but to hold them against a standard. And we see this throughout Scripture. And in one place is Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 25 through 40. And Again, I'm not going to dig into this entire thing. That's a lot of verses. 
But if you go read it, and I encourage you to, you'll see that this is just a great example of God calling out those who claim to have dreams that weren't given by God. And because of that, and because Israel just believed what they said, they fell into problems because their poor judgment led to false beliefs. And now, in the middle of all of this, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 32, God says, Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declared the Lord, and related them, and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people with the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. And so when it comes to prophecy, it's important for us to remember that God loves truth. And because he loves truth, he calls us to love him with our hearts and our minds by loving truth as well, by setting our minds after him and pursuing truth. And so through that, God's always holding Israel accountable for them following their emotions rather than their minds, for doing what they felt like doing rather than doing what they knew was right. And so in Deuteronomy and in this passage in Jeremiah and elsewhere, God is saying, my prophet is going to clearly be from me. And you need to use good, sound judgment to know whether or not they represent me. Because notice, Israel wasn't off the hook. They are never off the hook when someone stands up and says that they're a prophet and they're not. Israel is responsible for not using wisdom and sound judgment. And now in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the world has always had people who claim to represent God, who claim to have a word or a message or a dream or a vision or a prophecy from him. And I would argue there's even a lot of genuine believers out there who are convinced that what they have is a direct prophecy from God, and they confuse their feelings and their emotions with that. And so when that happens, all we can do is, like I said, we have to go to God's word first, ignoring our emotions, ignoring our experiences, ignoring our traditions and our own beliefs. We need to go to God's word and say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but what does God's word tell me? Because that's where we have to find our standard of truth. That's what we have to use to judge the words and the actions of someone in front of us. And so the question of, is a prophecy wrong if it aligns with God's word? Well, this is why I have to say that we need to understand how Old and New Testament prophecy works in the first place. Because, as you've read from my own understanding of God's word, from my own time studying it, is that prophets don't even exist today, that their purpose was done away with. And so if someone comes and says, I have a prophecy from God, or I have a dream that's been given by God, I'm immediately going to doubt it because my understanding is that God just doesn't do that anymore. And we'll dig into that more in a future question. But whether what someone is saying or prophesying aligns with what God's saying, that doesn't mean that it is prophecy. It can be true, but just because something is true doesn't mean that it's prophetic or that it's a direct word and message from our God. And that's really the difference that I kind of hope people see is that, as Peter talks about, a prophecy isn't a matter of interpretation or opinion. No prophecy was ever, as he says, created by an act of human will. 
It's clearly given by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, someone's going to know when what they are saying is either from God or not. Because if someone's not convinced that it's from God, there's a good chance it's from their own interpretation, their own understanding. It might be something that they, even if they don't mean to, are creating under their own will or because of their own experiences. Now, a common sentiment that I've seen, and this isn't necessarily a question, but a lot of people have wondered why we don't just take a wait-and-see approach. In other words, here's what's been said. Come October, November time, we're going to see if it's true or not, and then we'll know. And yes, absolutely, we're going to know if everything that was dreamed or prophesied comes true as it was said, if some of it comes true, or if none of it comes true. But that's not really the issue here. What I've learned from the emails and messages that people have sent me is that people are making huge life-changing decisions based on these dreams. People are trusting that these dreams are from God, that they are a direct message that he wants his people to hear and act on. Because as believers, if God is giving us a message, we need to act on it. We can't just say, hmm, that sounds interesting. I'll see what happens. Because that's what Israel gets in trouble for all the time. If something is from God, we have to obey it. Because it's from God. It's from the God of truth, the God of the universe, the God that has saved us. If he is telling us something, we have to listen. We have to act. And so people are. People are trusting that these dreams are from God and they are doing things because of it. They are making huge financial decisions. They're making plans about their family. They're making plans about their home and things like that. People are stopping their lives, pulling things out of banks, stockpiling, preparing for the worst because they are convinced that this is from God. And so whether or not Pastor Dana believes that these are prophecy, people are still treating it like that. And that's why we need to understand what prophecy is and isn't and how we should react to something like this. And of course, we also need to realize that the world is filled with people giving prophecies. And so if every prophecy is a word from God, then every prophecy needs to be obeyed. We can't just take a wait and see approach and just entertain people who say, I have a message from God, and we just listen to it and say, oh, that could be true. That's interesting. I guess we'll see. That's not obedience. God needs to be obeyed. If he's giving us a direct word, we need to obey it. And if he's not giving us a direct word, then we need to understand how to tell the difference. Now, another one, and I think this is a really good question that a lot of people seem to wonder about, is am I just confusing dreams and prophecy? And if you reread my article, you'll be able to kind of see where I'm coming from here. But while other people seem to say that prophecies seem to be these hard, concrete things and dreams are kind of wishy-washy, we don't really know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, we'll just see. If I look at the Bible, I don't see a separation between dreams and prophecies. If anything, I see prophecies as kind of an umbrella and things like visions and dreams fall underneath that. In other words, prophecies aren't always dreams, but in the Bible, when God uses it to give a word to people, dreams always seem to be prophecies. They seem to be exact and direct things that people need to either understand or act upon. And so even when we have instances where non-prophets or non-Israelites have dreams, God still sends someone to give them 
his message through one of his own people. And by that, I'm talking about, for example, Joseph, when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh was, by all accounts, not a follower of God. But God gave him a dream that he couldn't shake. He knew there was something strange and off about it. There was something about this dream that was different than all other dreams. And meanwhile, all this time, he had been rising Joseph up, carrying him through his life, taking him through catastrophe after catastrophe, preparing him for this moment where he would be able to give Pharaoh a message directly from God based on Pharaoh's dream. And so, ultimately, based on my own understanding of prophecy, from what I've seen in the Bible consistently, not just in a few verses, but the pattern that God establishes, all I can conclude is that we should expect dreams and prophecy to carry a direct message and meaning from God, and therefore we should expect them to not only come true, but to be acted on and obeyed by his people. Now, perhaps one of the most common questions I had was how I understand Acts 2.17. And now if we were to just read that verse, we would read, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so in our current understanding, we are fully in the belief that if you believe in a tribulationist view, in other words, you believe that There's going to be a literal antichrist. God's going to rapture the church. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. If that's how you understand the end times and things like Revelation, then when you see this verse, it's easy to see, oh, well, we're in the last days, so clearly we should expect people to have dreams and visions and prophecies. But if there's one thing I hope that people will always hear me say, it's that we need to look at the text. We need to see what is being said and why it's being said. And now, this particular verse is part of a much longer quote from Peter. And he's actually quoting the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Now, first, we need to look at why is Peter saying this in the first place? Well, if we back up to Acts chapter 2, and really at verse 1, we've got the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down and people are given these miraculous gifts. This is where we especially see the gift of tongues being given. And then from verse 5 on, we kind of get the setting of where Peter is right now when he's saying this. And they're in Jerusalem, and all these people suddenly start speaking in tongues and things like that. They start displaying these miraculous gifts to everyone around them. And people were hearing the gospel in their own language, and people were being challenged and encouraged by what they were hearing because they were hearing the truth of God from these men who, by all accounts, should not be able to speak their own languages. And so people were hearing this, and those who weren't struck in awe of God said, oh, well, these guys are just drunk. They're just full of wine. And so Peter stands up and says, no, it's just the third hour of the day. These guys aren't drunk. And then he clarifies that what they're seeing was prophesied about by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on with what we understand in verse 17 about sons and daughters will prophesy, your men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams. But we stop there, and that's very dangerous, because we remove ourselves from the full context and understanding of what Peter is talking about. Because as he goes on, he quotes the exact same prophecy that Joel 
prophesied. He continues it by saying, Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." And now that right there should make us pause and consider. What does last days actually mean? Because we assume that last days means the end times, the very last days of the earth. But when we actually look at the mentions of last days in the Bible, there's a significant difference between last days in general and sort of the last day, the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And so if you read, Christ even talks about the last days. And when he says that, the things that he says will happen aren't just talking about end times. He's not just talking about the last days or weeks or months of the earth. He's talking about this large span of time where we are in the last moments of earth. We seem to be in the last interactions and dealings with how God is going to interact with his people. The gospel is now spread across the world. Salvation is open to all. The mysteries of the Old Testament have been revealed and Christ will return. And so what Joel seemed to prophesy wasn't just a sign that the end was coming, but things that we should expect after God sends the Savior and he pays for the sins of his people. And I get that because if you look at verse 19, this is talking about the exact same time period. In other words, what we see in verse 17, we should expect happening in verse 19. The, the last days. And he talks about how there will be wonders in the sky and signs on the earth below. Now we might be able to interpret that in such a way to say, well, yeah, that makes sense with spiritual gifts. But then he continues, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. What are the last days actually? Have we been in the last days for the last 2,000 years? By all signs, I think we can conclude, yes, we've been in the last days since Christ returned to heaven. So now we need to ask, are the things that Joel prophesied meant to be an eternal thing that occur from day one in the last days until the last day? And I don't think that we can make that conclusion because... We have not had the sun turned into darkness for the last 2,000 years. The moon has not been blood for 2,000 years. However you want to understand blood and fire and vapor of smoke hasn't been a consistent thing for 2,000 years. So we would look at that and we would say, well, no, that's going to happen at a certain point. It's going to happen in the last days, but not for the entirety of it. It'll be for a certain time period. So if that's how we were going to understand the sun being darkened and the moon turned to blood, why would we not apply that same understanding to these miraculous gifts, to prophecy and visions and dreams? Why would we say that these are meant to be forever, but the moon and the blood isn't? And then, of course, if we were to dig further into this chapter in Acts 2 and see more of what Peter talks about, we would start asking ourselves other questions. So, for example... Are these signs meant for all people at all times? And if you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, these signs and wonders seem to accompany the apostles most of all. So it didn't seem to just be something that everybody got. It seemed to kind of follow in the wake of where the apostles were going. And then what were these 
signs doing in the first place? What was the point of them? And then in Acts 2, 37 through 38, you'll see that the people are actually responding to the gospel and people uses these to tell them to repent. So at this point, these gifts are for really reaching the lost. And then as we see in places like 1 Corinthians later on, we'll see that these gifts are for the building up then of the body of believers. And so to sum up Acts 2.17, because that was probably a lot, all we need to really say is just because it says last days, does that mean the end times and the rapture's coming? Or does it mean the last days as a long period of time that we're living in, where we are in the same last days that the Apostle Peter was in when he was quoting Joel at that time. So we just need to be very careful to be consistent with our interpretation and our understanding of what this means, because just because it seems to agree with what we may want to believe about prophecy doesn't mean that that's actually what's being said here. So we need to be fair to Peter, we need to be fair to God's word, and make sure that it is saying what it says and not what we want it to say. And now speaking of 1 Corinthians, another question I saw several times is that, well, aren't we supposed to expect supernatural gifts in the church? Now we can see this most popularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or even chapters 12 to 14. We can also see it in Romans 12, 6, and places like that. And so I want to dig in very briefly, and I know I keep saying that, and I don't seem very good at it, but I want to dig in very briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm only going to read portions of it to keep it very short, but I would, of course, encourage you to open up your own Bible, pause here, read it yourself, and then get a bigger understanding of what's being said. So I will read portions of chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, and then 8 through 10. So here Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, but do not have love, I am nothing. And later he goes on to say, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And now how you understand the whole context of what's happening in these chapters, 12, 13, and 14, is going to, of course, be very dependent on your understanding of chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Because he talks about how when the perfect comes, these temporary things, these partial things, will be done away with. And now you'll notice, though, that God doesn't say everything is going to be done away with. If you go back and read the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul doesn't just list these things that we should expect in the church, but later he points out three things that are going to cease. And so we need to ask, what is the perfect? Because clearly tongues and prophecy and this special kind of knowledge are meant to do something that are only meant to last for a short time, but then they will be replaced when the more perfect version of them comes along. And so, if you're familiar with this discussion and debate at all, it won't be surprising that my understanding of the perfect here is God's Word coming. The completion of the Bible and what we call closing the canon of Scripture, where we have all the truth that God seems to want us to have found within His Word. In other words, we don't need prophecy anymore. We don't need tongues. We don't need special knowledge. Because we know that from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 that 
the bigger picture of all gifts is really the building up of the body of Christ. That that is the purpose. God doesn't give us gifts for ourselves to make us feel better, to make us feel special. He gives it so that we can serve others, so that we can live sacrificially for his people. And so we need to ask ourselves, how would tongues and prophecies and this special knowledge build people up? And so if we look throughout the New Testament, we can see that tongues were God's means of giving the gospel to people. People from different countries and regions around the world who maybe the apostles didn't speak their particular language or the people that were hearing the gospel and coming to Christ didn't speak that language. Through the gift of tongues, God was still able to give the gospel through people in this very special and unique way. And this was important because, again, the church was very young. The church, in New Testament terms, existed in a small pocket of the world. And God's design was it to go global, to spread and be taught everywhere. And so it seems, if we look, that God's means of doing that was to start it in this little hotspot in Jerusalem give it to all these people who were visiting from around the world, give it to them in their own language so that they then could take that knowledge of the gospel and give it to their own people in their own language. And so that seems to be the entire point of tongues that we see in the Bible. It wasn't a confirmation of the Holy Spirit necessarily. It was a means of serving others by giving them the gospel in a language you didn't personally speak, but that through your faithfulness, God would give to those people who heard you. Now, in terms of this knowledge that will cease, we could get into some debate there, but my understanding is that it would be in line with what Paul talks about when God gives him knowledge of the mysteries of the Old Testament. So when he talks about how all these things in the Old Testament were shadows of Christ, how the Old Testament was always pointing to Christ, whether it's marriage, whether it's feasts, whether it's sacrifices, everything was always this mysterious thing. No one understood why God established things as he did. But then, as we see through the New Testament writings, these were always mysteries. These were always shadows pointing to Christ. And so, again, at that time, people didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. And how were these people going to see Christ in the Old Testament? It would appear that God gave people this ability to see and understand these mysteries in the Old Testament, to be able to read things like Genesis or Judges or the prophets and find Christ in them so that people could then learn to live a Christian life using just the Old Testament. And then building on that, that seems to be another thing that prophecy fulfilled. Whereas knowledge took the Old Testament mysteries with New Testament understanding, prophecy seemed to give specific clarity or understanding for our life in Christ. So in other words, the Old Testament may not necessarily speak about how to handle temple prostitutes or what to do with certain customs or things like that. And so prophecy would be able to come along and say, here's what God says. They wouldn't have a New Testament to point to, and there may not be something specific in the Old Testament, but in order to build up the body, in order to help people purge sin from their midst, in order to help them follow Christ more, prophecy would be a way of God building them up by giving them a direct message that a particular person or a particular church needed to hear. And so, if that is the correct understanding, if that's how we should understand these miraculous gifts, 
then what we really see is that tongues and knowledge and prophecy, these things that would be done away with, did exactly what the New Testament does now. Through having the complete Bible, we are able to reach people all around the world and give them the truth of God. We don't even necessarily need you to be there with them to explain it, although we need to explain it. But a person can get all the truth of God out of the Bible as long as the Holy Spirit is revealing it to them. Now, of course, that's not an excuse not to evangelize. That's not an excuse to just give a Bible and think it's good because that's not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to go. But it's through having that complete Bible and that complete New Testament that we're able to very specifically point out and teach people in God's word what a Christian needs to live their new life in Christ. And so going back to kind of the main question, aren't we supposed to expect supernatural gifts? Yes. About 2000 years ago, spiritual gifts were expected. But it's very important that, again, we understand the context and see that Something that was said to people 2,000 years ago isn't going to apply to us directly. We need to understand why it was said, what these people were supposed to understand about it, and whether that still applies to us directly today or if we are supposed to learn something about it in our year 2020 context. All right, so something a little more lighthearted now. Am I just a right-wing Democrat? Now, when I was accused of this, I honestly had to laugh. And I don't say that in a mean way, but... If you just go through my site, I probably offend any political party with the things I say, but I'm mostly going to offend Democrats because I have got an entire article series on abortion and why the unborn are 100% humans, and I base that on science and logic and the Bible. I have a few articles talking about homosexuality. I talk about homosexuality in the context of a popular verse in Galatians. I talk about my own experience sharing the gospel with a woman who was a lesbian. And the things I say are not hateful. And in fact, I'd recommend you read my article on sharing the gospel with her. But I've also talked about Black Lives Matter and whether churches should get involved in them. Spoiler alert, no. And I just have all kinds of topics like this where to accuse me of being a Democrat simply because I said don't mix your Christianity with your politics was just, it was funny to me. And so I hope that for people who have been with me a while or people who kind of dig into my other articles, I hope that one thing you'll see is that I don't want to just say things because of a party affiliation or even a religious denomination that I'm a part of. Because I want to call out any belief or any policy that's just not in line with God's word. Now, I'm not going to do it perfectly. I may say things that are wrong. I may not call things out that I should. But I hope it's at least clear that my desire isn't to be relevant and be part of my crowd, but that despite my failings, despite my weakness, despite my limitations, I really just want to be faithful to God's word. If his word agrees with something in a political party, awesome. If it doesn't, awesome. I want to follow God's word and nothing else. And now finally, there was a concern, and I think a right concern, that I was telling people not to be prepared. Because that was a big takeaway that a lot of people had from this video, was that they needed to be prepared. They needed to stockpile. They needed to get right with God. I had several people tell me that the video reminded them of the importance of being very intentional in discipling their children. And to a degree... I think that's good. 
I think there is great wisdom in realizing that we live in a world that is completely broken by sin. We have natural disasters. We have sinful people killing each other. There's no guarantee of safety in this life. And so any kind of hardship, whether it's an earthquake, a flood, whether it's losing our jobs, whether it's riots and chaos, everything in our lives is just one moment away from coming completely unraveled by human terms. And so, no, I think there is definite wisdom in having a supply of food in case something like a flood breaks out. Or as we've seen with this global pandemic, supply lines are a fickle thing and you better have your toilet paper. But being able to have, you know, drinkable water in case of emergencies or, you know, just just things like that. There is definite wisdom in listening to experts in the field and maybe just having a responsible plan in place, not based on fear, but based on wisdom. And of course, we don't want to do that because someone has dreamed a dream or has a feeling, but simply because we just want to be wise. We want to be responsible with this life God has given us. And especially with our kids, we want to be very careful that we are being intentional and direct and remembering that we are raising up little people to become adults who can love and serve God. So I'm definitely not telling people not to be prepared or to be wise. That wasn't my intention at all. But more than that, after the article and after some comments, I did start to feel a conviction about something that I should have said, and I hope that I would have said it if I'd realized how many people are going to read this. And so I did put an addendum on my article for future readers, but I know that a lot of people won't read that, and so I hope that this can kind of help clarify it. When it comes to being prepared, when it comes to realizing that life is short and brief and unpredictable... We are called to be prepared. We are called to think about more than just the here and now. And where my conviction came from is that in James 3.1, it talks about how not everyone should become teachers because teachers will be held to a higher standard. They will be judged with more judgment for the words that they say. And while I don't have any lofty ideas that people may look at me as a teacher necessarily, I do recognize that I am saying things with the intention of teaching and helping people grow more in their walk with Christ. And so I am pointing people in a certain direction. And so I want to make sure that I'm being very careful that everything I'm saying isn't just true to the word of God, which I think my article was, but that people leave what I'm saying, wanting to glorify him more and wanting to serve Christ with more passion and love because they know that that's what they should do. And so my addendum and something I really want to clarify is that as Christians, we do need to remember that we aren't just on this earth to live life and just hope that things go, you know, hunky-dory and that no bad is going to come. We aren't called to just live a life of pleasure and pursuing money and distraction and entertainment and things like that. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, Christ says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. And so, a lot of people have used this verse, or this passage, in two ways regarding this whole discussion. Some people have pointed to the last part that says that no one knows 
when the Son of Man is coming. In other words, we don't know when Christ is coming. He's going to come when we don't expect it. If we are making plans and saying, okay, Christ is returning, we already know that we're wrong because no one's going to expect it. And I think the world is going to look very different at the time that he finally returns. But one thing that we need to realize is that Christ calls us to always be at the ready, to always assume that he's coming. Even if we are strongly suspicious that he is not coming back tomorrow, the things that we do, the things that we say, what we focus on today should be things that if Christ comes back tomorrow, we won't look back with regret. We want to be able to be found loving and serving him deeply with all of our hearts, giving everything in our lives to him. And so a lot of people who have listened to this video about the dreams have really felt a wake up for their need to just pursue Christ, to stop getting distracted with the nonsense of the world. A lot of people are realizing that they may have put too much stock and too much emphasis on the pleasures and satisfactions that this life offers at the expense of the endless joys found in pursuing Christ. And so one thing I want to be very careful of is that I am telling people to not do that. I do not want to give people permission to say, well, maybe prophecy doesn't exist or maybe this isn't a prophecy, so I can just go back to how things were. No, don't do that. Whatever state the world is in, whether we are living in a land of prosperity and freedom and peace or whether we are living in a land that is war-torn and struck by famine and disease and whatever, we are always called to serve Christ. We are always called to set our minds on things above and not on things below. Because this isn't our life to live. When Christ saved us, he saved us into a life of serving him, of loving him. And that's not miserable. That's not burdensome. It is an amazing thing because it is what we were designed for. And we see this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this isn't our life. Whether a certain prophecy is true or not, we still need to live as though Christ is coming back. We need to look at our children and our spouse and our friends and our parents as though eternity hangs in the balance today, because it could. Any one of us are a moment away from death. There is no guarantees that we're going to have tomorrow to do all those things we wish we would have done. We don't have a guaranteed 30 years to read the Bible more, to get into prayer, to be more faithful at church, to serving more, to telling our friends about Christ. We don't have that guarantee. We need to live as though we trust that God is in control and we are not, that he numbers our days, not us. So we need to engage this world and view our lives in a way that brings the most glory to God. And ultimately, that is a life that is spent loving him above all else. In 1 Peter 1.13, it says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as followers of Christ, we're called to glorify him with our heart and our mind. We're called to be ready for action, to be sober in spirit, not to be distracted, not to be mindless and thoughtless with the time that God gives us. So when we look at our lives, when we do what we do, and think what we think. Above all, what we want is for our thoughts and our actions to reflect our hope in Christ, to reflect the life that belongs to him. And so if you've read my article or if you've listened to my podcast and you agree with my own conclusions, 
I don't want you to think you're off the hook. You're not. Remember that you are called to serve Jesus Christ. In my last episode, I talked about how the Christian church has become, at least in America, spiritually fat and lazy. We don't need to be that way. We don't have an excuse to be that way. Just because things are easier for us right now, or maybe were easier a few years ago at least, doesn't mean that we should just get comfortable and get lazy. We need to act as though we are constantly at war, because we are. We are constantly at war, if nothing else, with our own sinful nature. So, whether you believe these dreams or not, whether you agree with me or not, surrender everything to Christ. Live your life intentionally. Disciple your children. Tell your friends about Christ. Live a life in such a way that in 20,000 years, when you look back, you have no regrets about the life you live. Despite your sin, despite your brokenness, despite your failures, make sure that today, tomorrow, the next day, those are days that you can look back on and say, Christ, those are days that I surrendered to you. Not because someone had a dream, but because I wanted to serve you. I wanted to bring the most glory to God by how I lived my life. So those are my responses to some, like I said, comments and questions and criticisms that I've received on my article. I'd like to kind of wrap this up with something a bit more personal. So you can feel free to stop the podcast episode now if you don't really care. That's fine. But I realize that a lot of people have kind of learned about this Ray person, but all they know is just this very lengthy essay that I wrote. And so I thought I would just kind of give my own personal thoughts and reflections on the article and the reception that it's had and sort of what I'm excited for at the end of it all. So the first thing I want to say is that the surge in views and comments was completely shocking to me. As of this recording, I am at nearly 30,000 views, according to my website manager app that I have. And while I will assume that the vast majority of these people will click the link on Google, they will see that it's a, I think, 22-minute read time and then just click away. I assume that's where most of those come from. But even if only, say, a thousand of those people actually read the article entirely, I'm only getting, on average, 15 to 20 views on all these articles I've written. I've got, I think, over 200 articles right now on my website. 15 to 20 views is what I'm used to. And I'm thankful for it because, again, I am focused on serving my local church. And if other people can be blessed and encouraged by what I write, that's great. But 30,000 views is just something I was not prepared for. I think I've received between comments and emails, I want to say at least 60 people have reached out in some capacity regarding the article. And at first it was kind of exciting because something I wrote got traction, but then it became very overwhelming because, again, I'm just, I'm a guy in Iowa. Like, there's nothing special about me or what I do. I just wanted to talk about Christ and the Bible and try to find truth in it. And for reasons that God alone knows, he chose to use that article to reach more people than I ever expected. So needless to say, overwhelming, shocking, but my goal as always is to serve Christ and to be an encouragement and a blessing and even challenge others in their walk with him. And while I'm content, if that only reaches five people, more is great because that's more people hopefully being blessed and encouraged in their walk with Christ. Now, one thing I want to say, though, is that I was 
so pleased and almost surprised maybe at the general feedback from people who disagreed with my article. Because if you've been around the internet, you know that if someone disagrees with something, it's just very easy because you're faceless and you're nameless to just be hostile and angry and toxic to someone else and just tear them down. And as Christians, you know, we are warned over and over about how we use our tongue, how it destroys others, and how we can very easily fall into sin with how we respond to people that we don't like or don't agree with. And there was some anger and hostility. Uh, Some people accused me of some very hateful things and did not have some pleasant words. And it was unfortunate because these are, I assume, adults who I hope are bought by the blood of Christ and acting against the Spirit in that way. But really... There was a lot less of that than I imagined, because I realized that prophecy, and especially speaking against the existence of modern-day prophets, is a very emotional topic for people. And so the fact that while a lot of people disagreed with what I said, they did so in a way that was very thoughtful and very respectful. And I loved it, because even though they didn't agree with me, I was very encouraged, because they had enough respect for another image bearer of God to not only speak to me, a person they don't know, in a way that was loving and kind and gracious, but they even took the time to give their own thoughts. They took me to scripture to say, well, here's how I understand, and how do you think about this passage, and things like that. And it was really neat, because I got to interact with people in different countries or different states, and we just talked about God. We talked about the truth of the Bible. We got to talk about our shared love and service to Christ together. And we tried to have an iron sharpens iron moment where we disagreed and we didn't come out in agreement. But I hope that they end our discussions and our comments to one another challenged and encouraged because I know I was. I was very blessed by their kindness and I was challenged by how they were understanding things and it gave me a really good appreciation for needing to understand someone's traditions and background to understand how they might understand and and interpret a passage or how they might take the entirety of the Bible and have a completely different understanding about something because they are trying to be faithful just like I am. And it was just really great overall. So if you haven't looked at the comment section, it's very long. It's very lengthy. If you've read my articles, you know, I don't know how to be short and to the point with a lot of topics that I discuss, but Overall, it was just, it was a really encouraging thing. And it, it just made me so thankful to be part of this family of God where I can disagree with my brothers and sisters, but we realize that it's not a salvation issue. It's a secondary or even a tertiary thing that we can disagree and we can share our disagreements and we can point out flaws in one another's thinking. But at the end of the day, we know that we're going to be up in heaven, worshiping God together and just enjoying the presence of Christ and just spending eternity together loving God. So, if nothing else, that was just awesome. And if that's you, if you're someone who has gotten all the way through this episode and you're someone who's disagreed with me, I just want to thank you for your kindness and generosity in how you've spoken to me or to other people about the topic and just really glad we've all been able to hopefully bring glory to God through our interactions together. Now, on another personal note... One thing that I was very afraid of when I saw that my article was getting a lot of traffic is I was very worried about my pride because 
I'm a very, very prideful person. I am very sinful when it comes to thinking that I am more than I am not. And so immediately as soon as I saw, I think I saw the article hit a thousand, I was just immediately in prayer because that was the first indication I had that I was getting a lot of views as I got an alert that I had around a thousand views. And so I just, I went directly to God in prayer and I just begged him, don't let me remove your glory from this. Don't let me stand in the way. Whatever happens here, because again, I expected maybe 1500 views or something. And so I'm just, you know, I was terrified that that was going to drive me to pride and to thinking more of myself and that God was going to have to break me and humble me with that. And another thing I was, of course, concerned about when the comments started coming in is that my pride was going to be challenged because someone disagreed with me. And again, the internet really fosters this, but just in general, I don't think any of us enjoy being disagreed with. And it can challenge our pride because for someone to tell us we're wrong is to say that our truth is incorrect. It's unfactual. It's not somehow based on God's word or we are misunderstanding God's word. And in a good sense, we don't want that, right? We don't want to have truth and beliefs that aren't founded in God's word, but our pride can make us not want to accept that and take criticism well. And so once the comments started coming in, again, I had to go to God with even more prayer. And just, I don't want to labor on this too long, but I was just very grateful and humbled by God that my pride didn't get in my way, that I was able through the power of the Holy Spirit to take criticism well and hopefully respond with kindness and gentleness. And so just in general, in terms of my personal spiritual walk, was very glad that God allowed me to be protected from myself with this whole situation. And of course, not only did my prayer life deepen, but God just really grew my spiritual walk in other ways. So again, prayer life has just been deepened in general I am in prayer more often, not even just about this whole article situation, but just it really kind of got me some good momentum in being in prayer more often than the times I set aside to pray. So I just am kind of occupying those idle times with prayer more often, which has been so awesome and so uplifting just personally in my walk with Christ. Um, But this also gave me good practice in responding to people and not responding to people and understanding when to answer someone and when not to. Uh, It made me take my time much more seriously because I try to stick to a fairly strict schedule in terms of time with my family and time I spend on this ministry and things like that. And so I had to remove time from other places in order to answer comments and things like that. And so God really challenged me to just take my idle time more seriously and to invest whatever time I could find with my four kids and my wife. Um, Of course, in responding to people, I had excuses to dig into God's word even more, and that was awesome because it challenged my thinking and it solidified some things that I'd assumed and thought of for a while but had never taken time to deeply study into it. And then, ultimately, it just gave me an even deeper appreciation and a love at how important it is for the Bible alone to be our source of truth. Um, If I can be a little selfish, maybe, and I hope not, I don't mean it to be, but I was also very encouraged and blessed to see so many people use their gift of encouragement to lift me up. So, like I said, I had some comments that disagreed with me, but a lot of the comments 
either on the article itself or through my email were just really positive and really uplifting. And some of them were even very emotional. Some people shared things with me that were, I imagine, hard for them to share with a stranger, but they felt that they could open up to me in that way and be honest and kind of vulnerable. They shared some things that I know they were embarrassed of, and they trusted me not to judge them harshly on it or to criticize them, but to be loving and understanding. And just overall, I just was very blessed to see that people took the time not only to just read an article by some guy they don't know, and a long article at that, but that they chose to find a way to make sure that I heard what they had to say, that they were blessed or encouraged or that they just liked what I said and that they wanted me to hear that. And, you know, I know that this article wasn't me. Any success that it's had, any good things that people got out of it, whatever numbers the article ends up getting, it's purely from God. And I guarantee you, I can take no credit for it. And I think nothing of my own writing ability or ability to understand truth or dig in and explain and interpret the Bible or things like that. You know, because with each article, I'm just relying on the gifts that God has given me to hopefully reach out and encourage a few other people out there. But while it was purely God that drew people in and challenged and encouraged people, it was still just a blessing to me for God to, I guess, encourage and challenge those people to just reach out and just lift me up and as their brother in Christ, just give me kind of a bright point and something to I almost even help in those moments of frustration or exhaustion when all of this was happening and my schedule was getting upended and things like that. It was just a really beautiful example of how as believers, we just build one another up. We sharpen one another. We help each other understand truth. And we also sometimes just help one another know that that we as God's people just love one another and just want to display the goodness of God in one another's lives. So as I kind of just conclude this topic in general, I do want to say that, you know, I'm thankful to God and I've expressed to him over and over again just how thankful I am that he gave me such a unique opportunity to reach so many people around the world and just really talk to them about the Bible. Because I hope, if nothing else, people really focused on the parts where I just really spoke about God's word and tried to explain my beliefs based on what I read there. Because I know there are some other things that were a little more opinion-based and things like that, and they were necessary for the article, but that's really not the point of what I do or even what I was saying. But, you know, after all of this, I am more convinced than ever that I am not a person who enjoys the spotlight. It was neat to see such a milestone reached on my blog and on the number of podcast downloads I've had. Uh, last I checked, I was, I think, over a few hundred downloads just on the podcast episode. And it's been great. And it's been exciting to see God just use me in a way that I honestly never expected. But to be honest, I'm kind of excited just to get back into my normal swing of things to go back to this massive list of topics I have that I'd like to talk about and just get back to talking about the things I enjoy, you know, making Onward in the Faith a timeless resource for people, not something where there's a topic that is more immediate that people want to talk about and think about, 
but just being that place where people can go with any question they have about the Bible and hopefully trust that even if they don't agree with me, they can at least see where I'm getting my belief and my understanding and that they can then be challenged to either agree because what I'm saying is clear in the Bible or disagree but understand areas in the Bible that they need to dig into more on their own to be a modern-day Berean, which is what I talked about in at the very end of my article, that I just want to drive people into the Word and to help them love truth because that's what God's all about. He loves truth, and we love God. Therefore, we love truth. And so I'm just excited to get back into that, into just getting to kind of sit and quietly write my article and then just encourage people in their walk with Christ. And so as I cap off this episode, it was long, and I'm sorry, and I thank you if you've kind of stuck around for the more personal stuff. But like I said, I hope and I currently plan for this to be the last I talk about this topic in terms of an actual specific person. I will be releasing an article alongside this for people who may not want to listen and instead want to just kind of get the highlights and read that. But... I personally hope and I'm praying that this is just kind of the end of it because here's the thing. I don't want to be the guy who just addresses a certain person or talks about something they've said or done. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the guy who even talks about prophecy because like I said, prophecy is important, but it's really just not where my focus and my passion is in terms of study and talking to people and encouraging them. At the end of the day, I just want to be the guy who encourages people to find truth in God's word. And I hope that I've been that for you. I hope that whether you've only read my one article, whether you've been here for a while, or whether you've wanted to see what else I talk about, I hope that at the end of the day, all I do is encourage you just to seek God's word for truth, to dig into that, to let things like tradition and emotion and experience and whatever else be useful tools, but not the ultimate tool. Because I don't want to be popular. I don't want to be someone who is impressive to others. I just want people to get in God's word. Because this ministry is called Onward in the Faith for a reason. I want to be used by God to help people keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. And so again, if you've only read the one article, or if you're in this for the long haul like some people, I hope that God will allow me to be used in your life to do nothing more than just draw you closer to Christ by pointing you to God's word.